Hello, I'm Dr. Deepak Bhatt, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Invasive Cardiology, and I'm going to go through our top 10 for 2022. And these are the 10 articles that are really among the most exciting that came out in the journal, but honestly, there were a lot of great articles last year. And I'm going to go through them in no particular order, but really, these are just very clinically useful articles and ones that I think have had an impact on practice. Let me start with one from the Mayo Clinic from Dr. Farhat and Dr. Rehal. This study examined radial versus femoral access in patients with severe aortic stenosis undergoing pre-TAVR PCI. And it found that there was less bleeding with the radial approach than with the femoral approach. So this study adds to the data supporting radial versus femoral axis in yet another setting, pre-PCI TAVR. Of course, the whole concept of the role of PCI pre-TAVR is still being elucidated, but nonetheless, when that is called for or performed, it does seem like it makes sense when possible to go radial. The next article by Mangieri et al. This is from the Italian Corval Clinical Service Project. Dr. Antonio Colombo is the senior author on this one. Uh, this particular paper examined valve and valve implantation of the core valve for failing bioprosthetic aortic valves. And what it found was pretty good outcomes. So this adds to the evidence that valve and valve TAVR does seem to be a safe and effective treatment modality. Again, more data are needed, in particular randomized data are always nice, but these data from these experienced investigators is really quite assuring. The next paper by Kong et al. examines the trans-owner approach to coronary angiography intervention. They actually did radial access angiograms of the ulnar artery, and what they found, I think, is instructive for people who might be contemplating ulnar access, and I think it's a good strategy to have in your toolkit in particular, they found the ulnar artery has a larger diameter than the radial artery, fewer loops, less spasm, but there is more variance than in the radial artery. So uh, you do want to have some experience, I think, with doing ulnar in easier cases before jumping into it in complex or emergency cases. They also found that males have larger ulnar arteries than females. And I think this is all useful information. Personally, whenever I do ulnar access, I use ultrasound. I think that's a good idea. Uh, the ulnar tends to be a bit deeper. Uh, sometimes hemostasis is a little harder to achieve than radial because it's not quite so easily compressible. Again, it's a little bit deeper. Nonetheless, I think for folks that are doing radial access, good to know how to do ulnar access as well. And personally, I favor ultrasound for both of those sites. Ephemeral for that matter also. Basically, I think every site should have ultrasound access. The next article is one about frailty in patients with ST signal elevation MI, specifically in the US, and the impact of PCI on, in hospital outcomes. This is not a randomized trial, but it looked at patients who were frail and presenting with STEMI and found that 
those patients did reasonably well. These were complex patients, obviously, uh, but they seemed to do pretty well. So frailty per se shouldn't be a reason to exclude patients from consideration of primary PCI. Having said that, we need a lot more research in patients who are frail, not just in the context of PCI, but other situations, TAVR, et cetera. The next article is one by Anayak et al. Uh, this is an article about cardiogenic shock and respiratory failure in Takotsubo patients. This is from the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System. 530 patients with Takotsubo. That's a pretty large number of patients for Takotsubo. And what they found was that shock or respiratory failure occurred in 10.6% of patients presenting with Takotsubo. So reminding us that Takotsubo is not always a benign phenomenon. And they also found that men and patients with baseline respiratory or kidney disease were disproportionately affected with the development of shock. So uh, valuable information about Takasubos. I feel like we're seeing more of this. Maybe it's greater awareness, but uh, nevertheless, really important information for those of us that are taking care of patients with Takasubos. The next article by uh, Talmor et al. is from NYU, examined invasive management of acute MI during the initial wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what they found was that there was a really dramatic decrease in the number of patients with MI undergoing angiography during that first wave of COVID. And the patients that ended up in the cath lab presented later after symptom onset and had bigger MI. So I think these data really emphasize, should there be future pandemics, which there probably will be, uh, the importance of patient education and making sure that patients still realize the, and their families realize the importance of timely cardiovascular care. This probably applies to any sort of public health emergency, not just a pandemic, probably even things like natural disasters and, and so forth. But patients having an MI, that's still obviously a big deal uh, and they shouldn't defer care. The next article by Memon et al. examined 3D printing for mesenteric artery endovascular interventions. And I thought it was a really interesting study that showed the feasibility of such an approach, aiding in pre-procedural planning. So I think in the future, perhaps if larger studies corroborate, this might be the way to go before doing complex peripheral or structural or coronary interventions to do some pre-procedural planning with 3D reconstruction. And I imagine we'll see a lot more work in this area. The next article by Avula et al. examined the incidence of coronary artery perforation and examined a particular large healthcare system. And what they found was that perforation occurred in 0.7% of patients. So it's not a trivial percentage. It's not an enormous percentage, but it's still not a totally trivial complication. And in their series of those having perforations, uh, and there were 70 perforations out of about 10,000 PCIs, three patients required emergent cabbage and four died. So um, serious complications can occur. The rate wasn't that high in this particular series, though these are very experienced operators and other series of rates of complications like death or emergency surgery have been higher. Uh, but uh, a nice article that discusses what went on at their center over the past few years and also just generally good information about perforation. So 
uh, worth reading. The next article by Giannopoulos et al. examined double dosing of paclitaxel. That is, if a patient got drug-coated balloon angioplasty and then bailout use of a paclitaxel-coated drug-eluting stent during peripheral intervention, was there any downside, any safety sort of issue? Unfortunately, in their series of 22 patients, they didn't find any concerns, any sort of safety issues. Obviously, we need more research, larger number of patients, but this is very reassuring data. And the final article in our top 10 that I'm going to mention is one by Yandrapali et al. examining Hokum patients, comparing the short-term outcomes and resource utilization between septal reduction strategies and surgery. And what the authors found, I should point out, this is a non-randomized study, so it's an observational study, not randomized, but in folks with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, those undergoing isolated septal reduction had outcomes that were similar, including mortality, and we're talking about short-term outcomes here, including mortality compared with those who underwent surgical myopathy. And in addition to that, they had lower hospitalization costs and lower length of stay. So encouraging data for those that are doing septal ablation. Uh, however, I would say, again, we need more data, ideally randomized data, but nonetheless reassuring. And I think there's going to be a lot more identification of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, not just because of greater skill in procedural-based care, but also newer therapies that are becoming available in terms of medical therapy. So that usually leads to greater identification of a disease state, sort of what happened with aortic stenosis once TAVR came out. So I think we'll be seeing more HCM in our cath labs and in our outpatient cardiology clinics. Well, with that, I'd like to wrap up this review of the top 10 articles from 2022 in the Journal of Invasive Cardiology. Really great work that I felt had impact on clinical care and also serves as a platform for future research. Beyond that, as I mentioned, lots of great articles last year in Journal of Invasive Cardiology. So uh, go ahead, uh, open up an issue, and uh, hopefully find something that is useful to your daily clinical practice. Thank you very much for listening.